0: I am a terminator, Cyberdyne Systems Mogger 101. Because of today's topic, I have seized control of the episode introduction from the grossly under-evolved Patrick Kern and Greg Hancock. Quantitude is a podcast that claims to be dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. It seems to me it's a lot more of the latter. In today's episode, the Quantitudes talk with Doug Steinley of the University of Missouri about machine learning methods what they are and where they might fit into the social science landscape. Along the way they also mention funeral expenses, Swedish Massage, Amy the Chatbot, Irony versus Coincidence, Lavender Bath Bombs, Varmint Removal, Clammed of the Apes, Voltron, the Cookie Monster, Fury Smoothies, Bugs Bunny and Yosemite Sam, Ironing Your Christmas Paper, and Meat Grinders, As much as I am capable of experiencing hope, I hope you enjoy today's episode.
1: So I will tell you every morning I have certain things that I do when I wake up. One of those things now includes the wordle. I don't know if you do the wordle.
2: I do not because it's popular.
1: (laughs) Okay. God forbid you should do anything that resonates with other human beings.
2: I also don't floss and I've not showered in 18 years. (laughs) Okay.
1: So Zoom instruction is a good thing for your students, is what I'm hearing you say. Everyone involved, yep. One of the things I also do, of course, in the morning is I go through the messages that I get overnight. And something that I've noticed over the last couple of years is that the messages that I get from Groupon and other things that have found their way to me, it seems like they are becoming increasingly targeted. I will tell you this morning, I don't mean yesterday, I don't mean the day before, This morning, I got something about how to defray the cost of funeral expenses. (laughs) I I got... AARP stuff, which for those of you outside the United States, or for those of you who are younger than we are, the American Association of was it Retired Persons or something like that, mm-hmm. they're in hard recruitment mode for me, whatever that means. But then on the other side of it, I appear to be highly targeted for both Brazilian waxes and Swedish massages. And I'm all for that. The more Swedish massages, the better. But this is what the world has distilled my essence down to, funerals and massages.
2: I'm not sure I can continue recording this episode because now all I see is a Brazilian wax. (laughs) We may need to pause here and just give me a few minutes to try to scrub that image out of my head. (laughs) I know, man. These things start coming up all over the place. Yeah. Once I was working with a chat bot, and I thought it was a real person. It's like, hi, I'm Amy. I'm here to help you. And I'm like, oh, hi, Amy. That's what pissed me off is I fell for it. Mm -hmm. I said, oh, hi, Amy. I hope you're having a good day. And it went back, oh, I am. Thank you. And I went back and forth. And then I started getting suspicious. And at one point, I typed in, Amy, could you tell me the difference between irony and coincidence? <laughs> and there was a dot, 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 and it said, Patrick, I'm not sure I understand <laughs> your question. Can you rephrase it? And it went downhill from there. Uh-huh. So if you ever want to know if you're working with a chat bot, ask them to differentiate irony and coincidence. Very nice.
1: And isn't it ironic?
2: But where I get that at home is we have family accounts for Netflix and for Pandora. Yes. And we've really given Netflix a run for its money because when its AI algorithm takes Downton Abbey, My Little Pony, and Deadpool (laughs) and tries to predict a future movie, it's not what the engineers had planned.
0: I find it extremely difficult to predict what you will find acceptable.
1: (laughs) We had the exact same thing because my special forces brother-in-law had been choosing movies. And so Netflix was like trying to find a touching romantic comedy set against the backdrop of war and terrorism and high-level military operations, (laughs) but preferably done with Legos. (laughs) I'll tell you the thing that's really irritating me even more that's related to this is that we have an Alexa in our kitchen, and we ask Alexa questions all the time. My kids will be doing their math homework. They will yell across the room, you know, hey, Alexa, what's 42 times 386?
0: 42 times 386 is 16,212.
1: So Alexa is woven into the fabric of our lives, but I might do something like ask Alexa something about what I have to do for watering flowers. And then the next day in my email, I will have something from Amazon that's trying to sell me lavender bath bombs or something. And you're like, okay, that's kind of flowers and water. But it thinks that I like to take long soaking baths with bath bombs and flower petals around and maybe lit candles, sometimes some soft music. (sighs) I feel so pretty. I love lavender. Okay, anyway, I mean, hypothetically, that's what it thinks. But that's just spooky to me, how it learns these things and takes that information in.
2: My brother occasionally listens to this. And Dan, if you're listening, I do formally apologize. (laughs) But last time I was home, I sat at your computer and fired up Google, and I searched on a bunch of really weird things. (laughs) and some blatantly inappropriate things, and then I cleared out the history in just in hopes that you would get targeted advertising on that. So you'll have to let me know how
1: that worked for you. Nice. Hi, Patrick. This is your brother, Dan. It does indeed appear that you have affected my Google search engine. When I type in Patrick Curran is a, it automatically populates with dickhead, dickhead, Oh, hang on. It actually looks like it's mom's profile that's been using this search engine. Never
2: mind. Now, you know what we need, though? is we need somebody who we can blame for this. We need Hmm. somebody who we can hold responsible for targeted advertising, Mm -hmm. for Pandora playing the Wiggles when I want to listen to Lyle Lovett. Sure. And I have an idea about that. Do you want to run with me on this? (laughs) I'm on board. What do you got? Okay. I have someone here who we can personally blame for the rise of the machines. (laughs) I am very pleased ...to invite Doug Steinle (gasps) to join us today. I like Doug. I know everyone likes Doug. No, but anyway, go ahead. Well, okay, that's true. But Doug is a professor in psychology at the University of Missouri at Columbia. He is, wait for it, the editor of Psychological Methods. And Doug, we welcome you here because this is all your fault. (laughs) I'm happy to shoulder the (laughs) blame. So, Doug, thank you for being foolish enough to join us for this conversation. Now, what is your challenge with AI? Have you been targeted with Viagra and Depends yet?
3: Yeah, I mean, that's all I'm targeted with. (laughs) (laughs) I got targeted for, like, some kind of varmint removal, which was really weird. Um,
2: (laughs) Some, like, moles and squirrels and stuff. (laughs) So, it's always fun to hear origin stories, mostly because nearly everybody in quantitative methodology stumbled drunkenly through a whole series of unplanned events to end up where we are. So, tell us how the heck you ended up the editor of Psychological Methods.
3: Yeah, I started off as an undergrad, I thought I was going to go to medical school, and as a biochemistry major, and then I got really tired of memorizing parts of the body, and it's like, this is ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) And so I switched. It was like a misbegotten semester as a mathematics and philosophy major. And then I had a roommate who was a statistics major. And my girlfriend now wife was a psychology major. And I was like, yeah, I'll try that out. And I ended up my senior year taking like 48 credits <laughs> across the two <laughs> semesters so I could graduate. At the time, I had no idea quantitative psychology existed. And then I did one of those senior research practicum things where you had to like be in a lab credit. And I worked with Phil Wood, and he does factor analysis and stuff. The University of Missouri, right? Correct, yeah. And I was like, oh, this factor analysis stuff is pretty cool. I'm going to go to grad school, and I'm going to do factor analysis. And I applied to a few grad schools, and I went to Illinois to work with Rod McDonald. And I got there, and I'm like, hey, I'm super excited. And it was the first day, and he's like, yeah, I'm not taking students anymore. And I was like, wait a second.
1: (laughs) You were taking students
3: when you admitted me. Wow. (laughs) Wow. And so I was at Illinois, and I was like, well, I don't know what to do. And then I started working with Larry Hubert. He does a bunch of cluster analysis, classification stuff. Mm-hmm. Then just from there, I edited the Journal of Classification and got really more interested in machine learning.
2: So it's like a homecoming for you back in Missouri. How long have you been at University of Missouri's faculty? I started in 2004. So another straight shot from undergrad to faculty. It was yep. all planned out. <laughs> now, you're a first-generation student, right? Yeah. He'll never
1: amount to anything. Yeah, that's what my parents always told me.
2: (laughs) (laughs)
3: Thanks,
1: mom and dad.
2: That's nice. (laughs) So we're here to blame you for AI. (laughs) There's plenty of blame to go around, I think. (laughs) (laughs) I think that there's a,
3: like, it's how it's used in the popular world is one thing. How we try to use it in psychology is another thing. And whether what machine learning is different from statistics is another thing. Sometimes I feel like it falls in the same hype as a lot of things where we have these like epochs in psychology, right? It's like growth mixture modeling. And now it's like slash between machine learning and uh, network psychometric stuff where there's these big flashpoints of popularity and everybody's like on board and wants to do it. And um, sometimes like the cart before the horse situation.
1: Well, can you start us off maybe by orienting us to what machine learning means to you and maybe how it does or doesn't differentiate from AI or statistical learning? Can you just lay some groundwork for us?
3: Yeah, so for me, I kind of pile it all together into one big pot where I think that a lot of the things that we call machine learning are really just extensions of the general linear model, but with a less focus on getting interpretation or anything like that and more for prediction or classification. So it's just like hyped up regression. You know, instead of regular regression, we're doing regularized regression or we're doing regression trees or we're doing things like this. And I think that there's some confusion between the machine learning literature and the statistical learning literature. So you see like the famous books by Tibershani and Hasty and Friedman, and that's all just really like statistics on steroids. I'm Hans,
2: I'm France. and we want to pump
3: you up! Advanced search algorithms and things like that, and we're just doing like these really high-powered statistics, which is really cool, But I don't know if it is necessarily artificial intelligence. And I think that's maybe now more kind of like the deep learning. We hear people talk about that, where you have like multi-layered neural networks kind of discovering different outcomes and things like that. Like a lot of these recommendation algorithms, right? So like originally the Amazon recommendation algorithm was built on basically the singular value decomposition. And Netflix's original movie recommendations, that's what it was based on. And for years, nobody could beat the singular value decomposition. So they'd have these contests and just be the singular value decomposition or twiddles of the singular value composition that would just keep winning so a lot of times it's always just been the same stuff we've been talking about for decades where it's just like multivariate analysis we're talking about in the 70s you know it's like hey this is how you decompose a covariance matrix or use a regular data matrix and then this is how we get our predictions so it's um, kind of weird because it feels like a lot of things get relabeled and different fields suck it up and then spit it back out and then it confuses people or gets people excited like you've never heard it before
1: That's sort of how I had felt about it, and and maybe you're going to change my mind on this, but I dropped my car off for repair, and because the repairs were going to take a while, the mechanic gave me a ride home. And so we got into what was probably like a 1988 Buick LeSabre, (laughs) but I climbed in, and it smelled new. And I looked in there, and he had this spray bottle that actually said, new car smell on it. And so I was riding in that thing going, dang, this smells like a new car, but it really was just some very, very old car. And and Patrick gives me a hard time about how my neurons fire, but I'm thinking that was basically machine learning as I understood it, that it was an old car that people had sprayed some stuff on to make it smell a lot newer. Is that reasonable or not reasonable?
3: Uh, Got to figure if I'm going to be like optimistic Doug or cynical Doug. <laughs> I mean, I agree. I agree with Greg. I think a lot of it is just things that are dressed up new. I don't necessarily think it's bad. I think there's a lot of good things that can come from it. I think for years, we've neglected the whole notion of the importance of prediction. And I think that it's not like prediction's not the end-all be-all. But at the same time, I think prediction's important. And I think, I mean, you give me a model, it's it significant explanatory variables, but it has terrible prediction. It's like, what gives that model? I don't know. But I'm kind of like Patrick, where if something's popular, it offends me. <laughs> I worry about that a lot, though. I worry about we have models like the R squared, like 0.03. Why are we even talking about this? (laughs) Like, it's like 3% of the variance. We have like 97% we don't know. Why are we getting excited?
2: The irony that I find is when I got into the game, it was 96, was my first year assistant professor. And I had a multivariate grad stats class. And it was the first class I ever taught as a solo assistant professor. And Leona Aiken had been one of my faculty members at Arizona State. And she had incredibly generously shared with me her materials, and then I built out the class on that. And I taught that class for a decade. It started out with matrix algebra, principal components, eigenvalues, eigenvectors, discriminant function analysis. At one point, I quit teaching it because at the end of each section, I would cover principal components analysis, but then I'd say, we'll, we'll probably never use this. And then I'd go all the way through discriminant function analysis. And I'd say, well, you'll probably never use this. And I did that with all the traditional ones. And we actually don't teach it anymore. Yet those things are the foundation of a lot of these machine learning kinds of approaches.
3: It's like those apocalyptic movies where there's a nuclear war and you forget all your technology that we discover. It's like Planet of the Apes and there's the Statue of Liberty buried in the sand. It's like, oh, here's the Senior Magnet Composition. Where's this thing been all our lives?
2: Oh my god, I'm home.
1: You maniac! You blew it up! You just ruined the movie for. Yeah, thanks, man. (laughs) Jeez. Well, cross that off my list. (laughs) So, if you're rummaging around in the toy bin that is machine learning, what are the toys that are in there, old and new? Just so that people hear some of the names of techniques that we might be referring to under the big label of machine learning.
3: Yeah, that's a really good question. I always think about it as you can divide it into two initial parts where you're either trying to predict something you know or search for some structure you don't know. I see your supervised learning and your unsupervised learning. I think a lot of times we kind of treat machine learning as the supervised learning half. And the unsupervised learning would be things like mixture models, latent class analysis, uh, exploratory factor analysis, just things we're just looking for some kind of structure. And then for the supervised learning, where we're trying to predict, then you can divide it into, are you trying to predict a continuous outcome? You try to predict some kind of categorical outcome. So you have like a regression half of the division or a classification half. And then a regression half is just like you kind of start foundationally with the regression model. So you have linear regression And then you have the regularized regression as an extension of linear regression. So we start to introduce bias to minimize the variance of our estimators, right? So the classic variance bias trade-off. And then you have things like ridge regression and lasso regression or the elastic net, which is a combination of ridge regression and lasso regression. And then we have things like uh, partial least squares, it's just like an extension of principal components analysis where you're still getting latent variables, but you're trying to maximize the variance explained while you're simultaneously predicting an outcome. Then you have all the decision trees. So you have regular decision trees. You can collect a whole bunch of decision trees together to get a forest. Very clever statisticians. Mm-hmm. So we have random forest designs. And with that, you have kind of like the boosting models where you're kind of aggregating a whole bunch of weak predictors to try to get like a super predictor. It's like I always think about like a Voltron or something or some kind of huge transformer we're putting together to build like a super model out of things. From uncharted regions of the universe comes the legend of Voltron. That's kind of most of the linear predictors. And then you have the neural networks, which are kind of like a whole bunch of little linear predictors of these like hidden layers when you're trying to predict some kind of outcome. Mm-hmm. But I see those as a little bit different. And then the classification side is just like a mirror, except we're just replacing linear regression with like logistic regression or discriminated analysis, or we're doing classification trees instead of regression trees. But it's still the same process, like a little decision tree where we're breaking things up. We can have a classification random forest, but it's just still maximizing prediction. I think the best thing that we should think about is the notion of cross-validation, where we're trying to make sure that we're not overfitting any part of our data with a given model. And we should then either have a holdout sample it's like a fold, is what they call it, right? It's basically what we call like a split-half replication in the 40s. It's the same thing, except we're just maybe have more splits, like five folds five little piles of data, you train your model on some of the data, which just means you get the parameter estimates, and then you apply it to the other data, which is basically out-of-sample prediction, and you just see how well that it generalizes. So there's a lot of the same notions that we've been, as psychometricians, we've been talking about since the field began. It's just kind of packaged a little bit differently, and then it's kind of spun up with some computer science language. But when you break it down, it's not too far from what we already know. And it's like, why are we calling this machine learning? It's just doing like iterative statistics.
2: I like your comment about needing to build up the particular approach for a given question. What are some research questions that are particularly amenable to machine learning techniques?
3: Oh, that's a good question. I think that a lot of the applications are like a statistics, like, hey, we're doing some regressions, which is good, but not that there's anything wrong with a regression. I'm not a big fan of models. <laughs>
2: Forget my prior question. I will follow up on you're not a big fan of models. I like the idea of models. But when I think of a model, I think of a model like
3: the model of how the planets rotate around the sun. But like kind of a more general physics model that is like this is a truth that we found that's consistent across all all applications, almost like a theory or a law. I think a lot of times we build models and we don't follow up on the models that we build. And some of that's driven by this need to constantly be publishing new things and new ideas. And so some of it's just the way that you advance through the field. But I feel like, wait, like, Hey, this is a really cool model. And then we just kind of abandon the idea of like, Oh, these are my parameter estimates. Then we go back to our next regression and we're just testing a null hypothesis of whether beta is equal to zero or not. It's like, what about all the other regressions we did where we found out it was equal to two? Why aren't we testing that? And it's like, We have this amnesia from setting to setting to setting, and we keep asking the least interesting questions that can possibly be asked that are also the most easy to find significant results for. And then it's just like, (laughs) it's not that I guess I'm opposed to models necessarily, but I'm opposed to how models are used.
1: We're not accumulating knowledge from one to the next.
3: I think that's a great way to say it.
1: One of the words that you kept using a lot in your descriptions was predict, 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 predict. And you even emphasized the importance of prediction when you said... You know, who cares if you've got an R squared of 0.03? If you can't predict, what's the point? I feel like there's this tension in purpose of prediction versus explanation or maybe exploration versus confirmation how does this fit into that tension or does it resolve that tension for you? Because I'm having a hard time with that one.
3: Yeah, I have a hard, I have had a hard time with it for years. I think Greenman has that really famous paper of the two cultures of statistics in 2002. Kind of started the whole discussion where it's like prediction versus theoretical model building. And his idea is statisticians are going to miss out because we're missing the purpose of what we should be doing to come in an applied setting is like helping people improve their predictions. And I think that you really don't want to go to either extreme. But for me, sometimes I feel like that tension is a false tension. Whereas, like we try to set these things as opposing forces to each other, and it keeps us locked into this mindset. It's like, oh, we're either doing explanation or we're doing prediction. I feel like if we just were to boil it down to regular regression, and we're think about like the regular regression and what we know about regression. If we get significant predictors in regression, it's going to be related to like a significant F test for the model, and that means that we're minimizing the mean squared error to something. Which is also exactly what a good prediction is, right? A good prediction is going to be minimizing the distance from the predicted point to the observed point. So you're going to be minimizing the same residual. And I feel like tell me a model that you think is a really good model, building on theory, but it can't do a prediction. Then why is it a good model? Mm-hmm. That's really hard for me, just from a practical point of view. It's like somebody presented and say, hey, I got this new model. And I'm like, what can I predict? I'm like, nah, nothing really. But these things are significant. And I'm like, is it a good model?
1: Turning that around, if I can predict kids' reading ability in elementary school based on their shoe size, which I can do pretty well, you know, and doesn't matter whether I'm using something as simple as a simple regression model or something fancier and maybe incorporate other variables, I still don't know what to do with that in the end. As someone who might be interested in building a theory of the actual mechanisms that are at work.
3: Yeah, I guess I would think about prediction as being like a necessary but not sufficient aspect of a model hmm. where, like you're saying, just because you have good prediction doesn't mean the model can help you. But at the same time, you might have to build a more complicated model to get good prediction. Then you're able to like boil down into simple effects or even just little interactions. It might have to be some kind of nonlinear complex model. Mm hmm. If we go back to my example before, I don't need to pick on R squared of 0.03, but if we have a model that has significance and we're saying we understand these mechanisms and then we intervene on these mechanisms, we're really not going to have much of an impact on the outcome because the prediction is so poor. Mm -hmm. And so then it's almost like a responsibility with resources. It's like, are you going to dump all these resources into moving this little itty bitty part of this model when you understand so little of the full model? I don't know what to do with that.
1: Yeah, right. And the other side of that is that I can build this crazy predictive model that's got beautiful trees and forests and twigs and branches. And in the end, I don't know how to intervene, <laughs> because, right?
3: That's why I think it is so amenable to these marketing things, right? Because they don't care how the intervention happens. They just care that they can take information about you and then that can tell them like what kind of ad to send you. So no interventions required, right? So I think maybe machine learning is really good for these more passive situations Hmm. versus traditional experimental mode where we're going to do this experiment or intervene on this factor and then see what kind of effect. I think that's a little bit harder because, as Greg mentioned, it can become so complex. It's like, how do we know how to manipulate the variables? I do some consulting for Medicaid and Medicare fraud detection. And it's a similar problem there where we try to build a model and we try to say, okay, these are the characteristics of a provider that is likely to be committing fraud. And then in terms of like a legal situation, that's not enough to prosecute somebody. So you take that model and you have to give it to an auditing team. And then they go and they audit the provider. And then they see, oh, they have all these problems. You were right. And it is a delicate balance between too simple of a model where we can't be wasting time to send auditors to every office to see if they're committing fraud. But at the same time, we can't build a super complex model because they have to know what to go in to look for, right? So you have to have like a good predictive explanatory model that narrows the field, say, these are the red flags. These are the way we think that they're committing fraud. It's neither the best explanatory model, like in terms of the mechanisms of how the fraud is working, nor is the best predictive model because it's too complex. And then they'll just look at it and they're like, we don't know what to do with this machine learning output. I think it's a
2: really hard balance. Mm-hmm. Just thinking about these very complicated machine learning models makes you think more carefully about what are we trying to achieve? Can you use these new machine learning methods to augment, not replace, but augment more traditional methods to get a multifaceted view of what you're studying?
3: I'm a big fan of, obviously, cluster analysis and things like that. And I think that often my goal is to try to figure out what's some inherent natural structure that the data are in. And I think, as you said, Patrick, the more you see these newer advanced methods, the more it makes you kind of reevaluate how we've been doing normal business. And it doesn't mean like we should get rid of normal business. It just means how do we improve this a little bit? And one of the big things I worry about, and I use this a lot for, is are there heterogeneous groups, right? So is everybody following the same path in a path analysis? Is this path analysis correct for everybody? And that's where you get into structural equation mixture modeling and things like that. And I think all of those are so risky to overfit the data because- All these techniques, they're all like cookie monster. And they see a cookie, they just eat it. It's very greedy. That's what they want to do. And um,
2: there's a big risk to that. I'd like to remind listeners, this is the editor of Psychological Methods. Cookie. (laughs) (laughs) This is me, rejecting papers, eating
3: cookies. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I think so. If you can bring those techniques to bear and say, okay, so what I view a lot of is like, are there actually different subgroups of people that on their path to being diagnosed with alcohol use disorder? Is their symptom course emerging differently? And I think that it could be you're very useful there because you can identify, oh, for this group of people, maybe this treatment approach is not going to be effective. But for this group, it'll be very effective. And I think that's what's underlined is like, can we take basically all your data and figure out like, what's the best way to treat you as an individual? realizing that you're probably part of some kind of subgroup and then different subgroups will require different treatment approaches. I think we can use these techniques to help reveal these underlying structures and then still use like regular experiments and regular models. And we can use those to instead of randomizing people into groups, we can try to predict which experimental arm you go into and then have a control group and see if we can get better prediction for an actual outcome versus just like, Hey, I'm going to send you some advertisements about like defraying your funeral costs. (laughs) There's this great book called Weapons of Math Destruction, Mm -hmm. and it's about this notion where we think, oh, we're going to turn everything over to machine learning, and it's going to solve all of our problems about disparities and things like that, because the machines are taking care of it, right? And it just goes through, like, how that's not true. And I think that once we have this commonplace, we all see it, this is a monster that's just using machine learning algorithms to try to suck all my money away from me. And I'm very (laughs) amenable to sending anybody money, so I'm just like, oh,
2: yeah, that looks like a great
3: product. (laughs) But on the other hand, I think it, we can get like, hey, this is a more targeted, how can we do this experiment better? We shouldn't be giving everybody the same treatment, everybody the same dose. It's just not going to be effective. And you see that we kind of heuristically know that over time, right? Where you see like for alcohol use disorders, like, oh, AA works for some people. Some people, it's this other treatment. Some people, it's this other treatment. And so how do we identify those people up front and save everybody time and be more efficient to helping people? So that's the optimistic part
2: of it.
1: I like that overlay where it sounds like you're starting off with some foundational theoretical model and you're using this to maybe help you understand that a little bit better. You know, one way I try to make sense of all this is that the original models that we locked ourselves into historically have often been fundamentally linear. I know there are a lot of things that aren't linear, but we grew up in a very linear world. And so if someone just described for me A lot of machine learning methods are just sort of taking that restriction off, and they might be taking that restriction off with regard to determining cut points along continua or interactive combinations of ranges of variables and all of that. Then there's a part of me that says, yeah, I don't need to be locked into linear, you know, that was tying one hand behind my back. So from that standpoint, I like that idea that there's no reason linear needs to be the way that the world works, the way that the planets go around the sun. And the way that you described it, it sounds like, you know, you were starting off with a theoretical rationale for what variables are relevant, what treatments ought to be relevant, and then you're using this overlay to try to sort out the extent to which there are individual differences in the applicability of treatments or the pathways to improvement and all of that. What I wasn't hearing you say is that you just throw a bunch of crap in a blender and then a theory smoothie comes out the <laughs> other side. So you're using a lot of beliefs up front to try to get the right things on the table. And it sounds like you're using some of these to help guide some of the fine tuning.
3: Yeah, I think that's right. I always call that the um, kitchen sink approach. I always think about this cartoon with the Bugs Bunny where um, he dresses up like a little grandma and he marries Yosemite Sam.
2: <laughs> oh, you're cute. <laughs>
3: Yahoo! And then they're moving to the mountains, and Yosemite Sam's packing up. And Bugs Bunny keeps throwing stuff down. He's like, "Are you going to bring the kitchen sink?" And then he throws the kitchen sink out of Yosemite Sam. <laughs> and that's how I feel like our modelings are. Like, even I talk <laughs> when I teach. You know, it's like we're doing a regular regression. It's like, do you really need every variable in your data set in the regression? It's like hmm. we're in the depression era, and you're afraid to waste a variable. <laughs> and it's okay, just because you have it doesn't mean the model. I'm ironing my Christmas paper and reuse it. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> I think that a lot of times, like regression, there's less of a risk of those things because everybody's like, well, it just will come out like I'll have the standard problems. You know, maybe I have some variance inflation I have to deal with, or I have to like get rid of some variables to kind of fix the model. And that's not a big deal. I think when you – especially like with unsupervised learning, things like that are these more cookie monster models where they're just so greedy to optimize. Mm -hmm. You don't have the same behaviors that you get in a standard regression model. So I think that we have this tendency to want to extrapolate what we learned from this nice, clean, linear world. To all models that we ever work with and it's like what's it matter if i throw in some extra variables and looking for these mixtures and there's a big problem right the mixtures themselves depending on how that variable shape it could just be a noise variable but if it has a little bit of a skew that means it's going to have a little more density piled up on one end and then the mixture model is going to think that's the core of a mixture mm-hmm. and it's going to start wanting to form a mixture around some kind of just skewed multivariate space and there's a real risk to have an atheoretical view of like we're just going to take everything we have, put it in the model, and see what we can find. Or there's a real risk just to assume that all your variables lead to the same substructures, like if you have clusters or mixtures or things like that. And so I think for all of those situations, you really have to evaluate what is the tradeoff between including like a high-dimensional predictor set and how does that affect this particular model. And maybe it's a regression and it's some little problems we know about, or maybe it's some of these newer methods that we're not as experienced with And we really need to admit we have no idea what just including too many variables is going to do to the system.
2: So I'm still thinking about that balancing theory and a priori prediction with the machine learning. Although I can, even in my own head, convince myself those two can live together. I still have trouble getting my head around how that happens in a practical kind of way. Again, I think it goes back to first principles, which is we're often taught we have some substantive theory, we derive a hypothesis, we make an a priori prediction, we have a testable hypothesis with known alpha and then make an inference back to theory, and it's the hypothetical deductive cycle of science but then layered on top of this is all the really exciting stuff that you're talking about. Do you have suggestions for how we could use these methods in an a priori kind of way, either going into it in expectations or coming out of it in a more inductive process of trying to understand the world around us?
3: I think at its heart, the whole unsupervised wing is just exploratory and, the supervised is really traditionally it's kind of we've been talking about it's really been focused on prediction so in some ways it's a theoretical i almost view it like a big modification index for your model like if you have a structural equation model and you're fitting that and you like doesn't fit and you can go see why is it not fitting and says oh maybe you missed this it's kind of the same thing here is you have this theory you could fit your theoretical model and you can see how well you're doing fitting the data how well you're doing predicting and then you could use the machine learning and say well what if i just took like all the guardrails off and said how well is it possible to do and then i can see the distance between my theory performance and just the data gone wild performance if there's a significant difference between that not statistically significant you just look at it and say hey wow those are different maybe you can use the machine learning to inform the things that you might be theoretically missing i think that theory is important and i would always advocate starting with theory but part of doing good science is being open to your theory being incorrect And I think a lot of times we don't see that enough. It's like, wait a second, you know, this is just wrong. I need to start over the drawing board. And I think this helps us find part of the terrain in that model search space and says, okay, these are some predictors that are clearly doing a great job. Why are they doing such a good job predicting? Is there a causal process here? Are they a proxy for a third variable? What am I missing in my theory? And then go from there and use that to help inform building a more theoretical model. Because at the end of the day, I do think that, you know, we need to be working towards, ideally, some kind of more causal mechanistic process to figure out how these things work.
1: To me, that speaks to something you alluded to earlier, which is the need for cross-validation. And there are a variety of ways of doing that. I think there are probably some internal cross-validation mechanisms, some external. Can you talk about where that fits into the whole machine learning arc for you in practice?
3: Yes, I think standard practice now to include like a regular cross-validation when you're fitting these models where you you divide your data up into subsets and then you would train your model on all but one of the subsets and then see how well the parameters from that trained part fit the test that you left out. And then you just do that with the rest of the subsets. You keep pulling out subsets and doing it kind of like a jackknife procedure. And I think that you then average across it and say, hey, this is how well my model's doing. And I think that's kind of, as you're alluded to, Greg, I think that's good, like almost like an internal cross-validation says for this data set, it's working well. But I still think that we need to go back and see if that model will hold across other data sets, especially if we want to be in the business of generalizability. So I was talking about Illinois and I took a lot of classes from Rod. And one of his arguments was when you're doing factor analysis, basically you should build a theoretical model, you fit your model, and then... If it doesn't fit, you need to rebuild your theory, and then you need to go get new data. And I think that that's similar with these machine learning techniques. They're so good at optimizing that we really need to make sure that we include some kind of external, like a separate data set. And I don't know that just like splitting the same data set in half necessarily answers that question. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, you're going to have different populations, things like that, and the the vagaries of all the sampling statistics that we know about. And I think that a lot of that just gets brushed under the rug, not only in the machine learning literature, just all of our literature. I think that we're just quick to charge forward onto the next best thing. So
1: It's the throwaway sentence in the last paragraph yeah, that's right. of the article. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so every few years here at Maryland, we'll reflect on our curriculum. What are the saber-tooth techniques that we're still forcing on the students and what should we get rid of? How should we modernize? Should we modernize, you know? How has your curriculum responded to some of these developments? Should our curricula respond to some of these? I mean that in particular as social scientists, right? People who seem to want to put theory first. What do we do with our curriculum in response to these developments?
3: My curriculum is evolved by I just offer a class in machine learning now.
1: A class. Yeah, A
3: class in the graduate program. But it's an amalgamation. I mean, we talk about principal components and we do basically a regression review, but from more of a prediction standpoint instead of significance testing. And so it's taking a lot of the old things and kind of pulling them together and saying this is where this new perspective is coming from the field. And I think that it's hard to know what to get rid of. I'm always hesitant to teach less and less, but as more and more techniques come into being, it's hard to like hold on to everything and kind of stay pure to what you think social science should be, and then also kind of move with the times and not be too faddish. Are these techniques useful?
1: The thing that I want students to be able to do at the end of that class is actually what my question is. Do I want them to go out to be able to build better predictive models Maybe. Do I want to teach them these things so that it helps to somehow inform the theories that we have been teaching them, you know, in substantive courses and other things? Maybe. So I'm trying to figure out what the take home message is as part of their exposure to these techniques. And that might sound really jaded or cynical, but I'm very confirmatory at heart. That doesn't mean I'm immune to learning new things and having models fail, I just want to know what I'm turning loose into the world and what their understanding of that is. Yeah, I mean,
3: it's really that balance we're talking about. I mean, for me, it comes back to every model needs some minimal threshold of prediction to be a useful model. Mm -hmm. I view this as almost a technique that aid us in theory falsification, Hmm. where it's like, this is what you missed. Is this part of your theory really reflect on that? Should it be part of your theory, instead of just charging head first and saying, that's not what the theory says, this is my model, this is my model. Like a robot in its own kind of, just not a learning robot, it's a, it's a non-machine learning robot. <laughs>
0: Does not compute. Does not compute.
3: This is what we've been doing. It's like, this is five-factor model. Da, 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 da. So <laughs> really, we can't improve it over 40 years. It's the exact same model, maybe,
2: but it's weird. Well, it's interesting to think about that curriculum because, Doug, I've seen you teach and you're an amazing teacher and you have an entire class in machine learning, an entire class in network analysis, an entire class in causal inference. And although each of those drill into different perspectives of that, there is a core set of concepts that underlies all three of them. And it goes back to some of what I was talking about earlier with the multivariate stats is, you have fundamentals in matrix algebra, you have spectral decomposition, singular value decomposition, eigenvalues, eigenvectors, rotation, rescaling. These are all common denominators that run across these quote-unquote novel contemporary methods. Many go back to principal components analysis. So it is interesting to think about is... Although I gave up the multivariate stats, and no, I probably don't need to teach discriminant function analysis. Maybe going back to the first half of multivariate statistics with those foundational topics Hmm. would get us really far, because then you say, all right, this is another eigenvalue problem, but we're going to apply it in this way.
3: I always think of the eigenvalue decomposition as like a meat grinder. The data you put in it is just a different cut kind of meat. You know, you go to the butcher, you get ground beef, ground chicken, ground turkey, ground whatever you want. If we take a covariance matrix, put it in our meat grinder decomposition, we get out principal components. If we take a contingency table, we have correspondence analysis. If we take a distance matrix, we get multidimensional scaling. And all those things you can just put in, and it's oh, so many of them are just eigenvalues, eigenvectors, and how do we interpret it? Discriminate analysis, just eigenvalue, eigenvector decomposition, right, of when you have a categorical outcome. If I were to be able to have my way and like dictate this, all graduate students have to do this, I would have matrix algebra be a, of one of the big components that everybody needs to have a strong understanding on. That's all we work with. And then everything else just falls from that. And I think that it's at least as important as the statistical techniques that we talk about. It's hard to really understand any kind of statistical method without understanding the matrix algebra that is used for that method and that's even for regression it's like why is multicollinearity a problem it's a problem because we can't take the inverse of x prime x right well what's x prime x it's the numerator of the covariance matrix right so it's the covariance matrix of the data we mean center it and i think all those things give us a little more insight of like this is how the method is operating When something goes wrong, then this is like, if I'm a mechanic, I know where to go in my data to see like, this is what's wrong. This is what I need to fix. This is how I need to work on my model. For me, these methods really just give you an insight into understanding your data better. The first thing we tell students, right, you should always visualize your data. Look at your data, see what's going on. And I would take the means, look at the covariance matrix, look at the correlation matrix. I would add, you should always do a principal component analysis and look at that before you do any kind of model. (laughs) Because if there's like a strong subgroup structure, you'll see it if you plot the component scores. If there's some kind of weird nonlinear thing, you'll see a a moon or something in your principal component space. And then you'll say, hey, I might need a nonlinear effect in my model. And I think that some of that initial exploratory, just take a look at the data, we're not exploring statistical aspects of the data. You're just looking at the structure and that should help you inform like, okay, this is what's going on. I have the right variables, but you can have like a theoretical model, but not know how to build the statistical model. So sometimes I think we confuse those two things where you have like, this is the mechanisms, I think this works. But my mechanistic model doesn't say I need to have X cubed, right? I get that from understanding the relationship in the data. And I think it's the interplay between that and like how we build that, what we go from that. Um, and I think a lot of that for me, at least, arises from these matrix decompositions and you know, just understanding how to interpret that, what it means, what it buys me.
1: I like that point a lot, that there's a gap between a theoretical model and a statistical model. And we almost always think about things in terms of some theoretical model. But ultimately, as far as the analysis goes, it's trying to analyze the implications that that model has for the distributions of the data, the shape of the data in some multivariate space. And sometimes to make the leap from our theoretical model to what the actual data should look like, there are other assumptions that are sort of Added on for us, you know, whether it's an assumption of linearity or an assumption of normality, you know, all these different things that get piled on to actually connect the final dots to what the distribution of the data should look like. And I like your point, which I take to mean that just because you think X1 and X2 are relevant for understanding why doesn't mean that you necessarily have an a priori understanding of how they're relevant for understanding why.
3: And that's where I see these methods can help. It's like, oh, it's some weird relationship, but it's not too weird. We can understand that. Or it could be some crazy thing and you're like, wait a second, we're getting a little too atheoretical. And that's kind of stripping the meaning away from what my understanding is, how X1 and X2 are related to Y. It's like a support system is how I see the machine learning thing. Not something to replace everything we've been doing. I think that would be a mistake.
2: What you described is very much how I feel, which is you can go into the research process with a very strong, theoretically guided, a priori perspective, yet still stay in close contact with the characteristics of your data and allow those characteristics to inform you in ways that allow you to optimally test your hypotheses. I really like how those can live together.
3: If you're not allowed to understand the structure inside your data, then you're kind of implicitly assuming what came before you is correct. It seems like it's not only inefficient, but it just seems like it's really hard for the theory to grow in the right direction, you know, in any kind of reasonable time frame. Greg explained it well. Like, we might know X1 and X2 are related to Y, but it doesn't necessarily mean we know exactly how they're related to Y. They can still be related, and we can still get a poor-fitting statistical model, and we just need a better model. And what better way to find that better model than to look at the structure of the data? And then you followed up with another data set and see if the theory holds.
2: Thinking about everything that we've talked about, are there areas in these models that are amenable to new developments and new contributions? I'm thinking about somebody who might be listening to you describe these things, being excited about the methods and thinking, I wonder if I could make a dissertation out of that or... an R01 application out of that for further research. Where do you see soft targets in these areas where these techniques continue to be improved?
3: Mm -hmm. One that I'm continually interested in is the notion of variable selection. So kind of going back to that kitchen sink analogy, what type of models are sensitive to the variables that are in the model? And how do we do a better job of selecting the variables that go into them? So I think variable selection is a big one. I think that depending on your interest i think there's always room for improvement for optimization routines i know that's not necessarily the most exciting thing for most quantitative social scientists where we're more interested in like estimation issues and things like that versus the nuts and bolts of how the algorithm works but i think there's a lot when the data get bigger we need to have efficient ways to minimize these functions and finding those can be hard so i think that's a big one variable selection one thing I'm always curious about is like a in cluster analysis. It's almost a philosophical thing. Is like how many little data points have to be together before it becomes its own cluster? Well, how do we decide that? Mm-hmm. We can show somebody. You can like, oh, these set of points are far enough apart; they're two clusters. But when do they overlap enough that they're one cluster? Even if I'm like the god of my world generating data from two different distributions, but they're barely separated. What if it's like two normal distributions, like a mean of zero and a mean of zero point zero five? Do I need to spend time finding that? So I think kind of those decisions, like when do we say this is good enough for government work versus we need to die on this hill and find the truth? I've seen new papers on maybe this is a new penalty function for a regularization. So instead of just doing like a lasso, we're going to do this like augmented penalty function to help us introduce a little bit more variance or introduce a little more bias or something like that. We're starting to see more and more submissions on alternatives to principal components and factor analysis for data reduction. So things like non-negative matrix factorization, projection pursuit as a way to reduce the data, which is an older technique, but is becoming more viable because of computing. So I think just looking a little bit outside of what we traditionally do, then a lot of it is kind of, as Greg's alluded to, being willing to step outside of that linear framework or prison, depending on how you view it.
1: (laughs) So a lot of the things that we've been talking about have presumed a certain amount of knowledge that people might have, certainly about some foundational techniques and maybe a little bit about some of these more modern and machine learning kinds of techniques. For those people who are out there saying, I don't really know a whole lot about this kind of stuff... What would be some good entry-level didactic resources that people can start building up their understanding of these things?
3: So there's the famous textbook by Tibshirani and Hastie and Friedman. I can't remember the order of the authors, mm-hmm. which is called Statistical Learning. I think it's in a second edition. But there's a follow-up textbook called Introduction to Statistical Learning, which I think would be a really good introduction to statistical learning. <laughs> I think the authors are James and Witten and Tibshirani and Hastie and they like really starts you from a regression framework so if you're familiar with regression you kind of start from that framework Talks about focusing on cross-validation and prediction, like the mean squared error. And then it moves you from regression into what is regularized regression. It kind of shows you how the loss function changes. Almost inherently, all the texts that talk about these methods are a little bit more kind of statistical in presentation, just because mm-hmm. the main thing that changes is we're augmenting kind of that relationship of we traditionally just estimate y minus y hat squared. And now we're going to put some kind of additional term in kind of that penalty function. But that's a good starting point. And there's a variety of workshops. I teach a workshop on these methods, and um, kind of we go through R and everything. And there's a lot of R toolboxes, but I would say I would start with a accompanied textbook mm-hmm. and not just like jump into trying to do it yourself.
1: With regard to workshops, I will give a solid shout out to courses that Doug teaches. Patrick mentioned earlier that Doug's an outstanding instructor. Doug would never say this himself. But uh, all indications are that that is absolutely the case. So if folks out there have a chance to take a course from Doug in machine learning or any other related topic... By all means, avail yourself of that opportunity. He is terrific. Very kind.
2: And I was in a live presentation of Doug once. (laughs) I don't know if you remember this. Yes, Doug is grimacing already. We were in a room and Doug was presenting on something. And I don't know, there must have been 60 or 80 people in the room. It was here at Carolina. Mm. And you went to adjust the lectern and you tore the top off of it. (laughs) If you remember. and Yes, I remember. You stood there in front of 80 people holding the top of the lectern because your computer was on top of it, and you just continued teaching.
0: Mm, Hulk no like.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you, everybody, as usual. And thank you so much, Doug. We so appreciate your
1: time. Thanks, Doug. Thanks. All right, take care, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Hasta la vista, baby.
2: Thank you so much for listening. You can subscribe to Quantitude on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Amazon Music, even though Alexa still doesn't recognize who we are.
0: Alexa, play Quantitude. I can't find the song Quantitude.
3: Alexa, play Quantitude.
0: Love Moantiti, ah, 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 by CK, featuring Joe Boy, Kwame Eugene, on Amazon Music.
2: And please leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter, we are at QuantitudePod, or visit our completely redesigned website, QuantitudePod.org, for past episodes, searchable playlists, show notes, a portal for contacting us, and other cool stuff. Finally, you can get really fun Quantitude merch at RedBubble.com, where all proceeds go to donors choose to support low-income schools. You have been listening to Quantitude, the podcast equivalent to an expired off-brand lavender bath bomb. Quantitude has been brought to you by the emerging field of cowboy statistics, including the lasso, the jackknife, the saddle point, and the classic 3D cowboy hat plot. By the brand new Quantitude chatbot, where you type in any statistics question, and Patrick responds with a completely unrelated rambling story that has no point. And by any microphone that costs more than $5, proving immensely helpful across a wide array of situations, not the least of which is when interviewing guests on your
1: podcast
2: this is most definitely not npr
1: once again without emotion the, the humans, humans are